fiction is just it's such it's it's endless it for someone who's an avid reader like you are a good book just provides the greatest kind of pleasure right i mean you can you can escape and you can get into the lives of the people that you're reading about sometimes something quite profound occurs i love the variety and i love the uh i love what i learn out of it from bookworms in the wild and from anchor I'm Howard Altarescu, and this is my podcast, where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. After my podcast discussion this past fall with my friend Jim Finnegan, Jim suggested that I speak with our guest today, our friend Joe Palazzato. Jim told me that Joe reads a lot and broadly, but the real hook is that Joe is always reading three books at the same time, a novel, a piece of nonfiction, and a golf book. I spoke with Joe shortly after hearing from Jim and pretty quickly discarded the idea of discussing golf books. However, Joe had lots of other books to choose from. Actually, more than books, Joe focused our discussion on authors, including the following. Joe described the works about the state of America by American novelist and short story writer Richard Ford, and I was immediately reminded of Philip Roth and John Uplake. Joe also mentioned Thomas Perota, an American novelist and screenwriter, and Jonathan Dee, an American novelist and nonfiction writer. Dee's most recent book, The Locals, is about small town post 9-11 America. Dee studied fiction writing at Yale with the great John Hersey. Dee's first job out of college was at the Paris Review working for George Plimpton. And many years ago, Dee apparently helped pull off the popular April Fool's joke about Sid Finch, a fictitious baseball pitcher who Plimpton wrote about for Sports Illustrated. My friend David Levine will love hearing about this one. Joe also expressed enthusiasm for Irish writers Colm Toybin, whose latest novel takes place in a small town in Ireland, and Sebastian Barry, the laureate for Irish fiction, who Joe described as the greatest living English author. Joe mentioned Nobel Prize winner Alice Anne Monroe, a Canadian short story writer whose fiction is most often set in her native Huron County in southwestern Ontario. Finally, Joe mentioned the works of Pulitzer Prize winner Elizabeth Strout. We decided to talk about Stroud, but we could have discussed any or all of the other works that Joe ran through when we first talked. Among other things, I was attracted by Stroud's reputation as a storyteller, a Pulitzer Prize winner after all. Also, that she was born in Maine, where our family has spent lots of time over the years with our friends, the Lermans. Stroud went to Bates, where so many of the friends of our daughter-in-law Eden went to school. Strout Waitress in New York City, the classic path for writers and actors. And also, Strout went to law school, but found writing to be her calling and her passion, a bit like my friend Kara Moskowitz. Joe, you also mentioned George Saunders, John Meacham, and Doris Kearns Goodwin, in addition to all of these novelists. The breadth and depth of your reading tastes are impressive, and I must say a bit overwhelming. By asking you to tell me what you're reading, I'd like you to discuss Elizabeth Strout and her novels, 
and the characters that flow through her stories. But I hope that you'll address as well the theme that appears to be common in a number of the works you mentioned to me. Small towns. Writers from small towns and stories about small towns. Is there something special about small towns and fiction? Start off, please, with your thoughts about Strout. And Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Howard. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I was, I, I do have an interest in small towns, but uh, and, but I'll start with Elizabeth Stroud. So the first, my first encounter with her would, was probably with her most famous book, Olive Kittredge. And it was attractive to me for a number of reasons. I, I'm a inveterate bookstore denizen. I'll go in and I'll usually look for new fiction, uh, having read, you know, the classics in my younger ages and, and then sort of the 20th century classic American novelist, starting with Hemingway and gravitating towards uh, Bellow and, and Roth, as you mentioned, and, and Updike and others. Uh, the book seemed interesting. My daughter, ironically, had just matriculated to Bates, and so I was spending more time in Maine itself, and so the, the setting was also appealing to me. Uh, and so that was my, my first encounter with her. And then I did a little bit more research before getting into Olive Kittredge. Uh, I do like writers who sp- uh, write about small towns and small town life because the interconnectivity of people seems to be greater in a small town than it is in, a, in, a, in an urban environment. In many ways, I think you can live way more anonymously in a city than you can in in, in the country. You, you really can't escape your, your, your surroundings. The sense of place is critically important and it certainly is true in all of Strout's work. And, and uh, many, many writers who I've enjoyed over the years, uh, including two that you didn't mention, Richard Russo and, and a Canadian writer named Alistair MacLeod, uh, are both very much similar in the sense that they're, it's their sense of place that makes their novels, I think, uh, really, really important. It's almost as if the place is the the focal point of the novel as opposed to the characters, although certainly in the case of Olive Kittredge, it's hard to make that statement uh, as de- as definitively as I just did because she's such a an outsized personality. She is. So, uh, so you know, in, in, in terms of Olive herself and how magnificent this book is. And I do consider it a novel, although you could you could argue it's a series of interconnected short stories. But to me, it's very novelistic in the sense that it does proceed in a chronological way. Pretty much every, every one of the stories, if it's not directly about Olive, mentions her in a way that provides insight to her character. And, uh, and look, she's a misfit. She's someone who uh, has had difficulty managing the closest relationships in her life, whether it's with her husband or uh, or her only child, Christopher, uh, but who is also also someone who's had a big impact on her community. And in many of the stories that are not directly about her, her impact is is quite tangible and in in some instance, in at least one instance, life-saving. So the the impact that she had uh, it's well, the life-saving incident is is different, but she was a presence. She she had a view uh, about everybody in the community, including her neighbors across the street. Correct. She was uh, uh, in a high school setting or a middle school setting, I believe, as a math teacher. But everyone in the town knows her. She 
she walks into a restaurant and people are aware that she's there and there are people who like her and people who think she's just a miserable human being. <laughs> uh, and there is that level of, of, of uh, uh, she's a very critical person. And so there are people who's just not going to take to her and she's not going to suffer fools gladly. If uh, she's uh, uh, in the presence of someone who, whom she doesn't like, she will quickly uh, uh, find a way to leave the room. Yeah, critical is a good way to put it. When uh, I read a bit about uh, uh, Olive and her son Christopher uh, and, and his new wife at the time, she was oppressive, I think, in, in her criticism. Totally. It's totally oppressive. Uh, you know, this is someone, her husband, Henry... I liked him a lot. Henry's a wonderful human being. He's just, he's what you'd call salt of the earth, right? Yeah. First of all, he is 100% devoted to Olive, uh, understands her her strength, but also her weaknesses. But notwithstanding that, his love for her transcends any of those weaknesses. Uh, and both he and Olive, in their own way, you know, wanted Christopher to be settled in life. So there's a there's a there's a line somewhere in one of and somewhere in Olive Kittredge where Olive says, Henry wants everyone to be married. And, and, and Christopher, uh, while he was a depressive child, uh, went through uh, school, became a podiatrist, was then a small-town podiatrist when he runs into, uh, I believe, Suzanne, who is his somewhat, and it's a whirlwind marriage. She happens to be in town for a, for a yes. lecture, and she hurts her foot. And so she needs to see on an emergency basis a podiatrist. And one thing leads to another, and they're married in six months. And this is quite discombobulating to Olive and, and really to Henry, too. Henry is desperately hoping that their only child will stay in Maine. Olive is as well, although she doesn't, I think, appear to be quite as desperate to the new bride. And for four months, the, the married couple do stay there. And then I think the bride figures out, this is not the place for me. And part of it is a relationship that, from the get-go, was just never going to be a good relationship between wife and, and mother-in-law. Uh, it was awful. It was awful. It was awful. And, of course, the marriage lasts a year. Right. As we later learned, after, after the son has moved out to California. Uh, uh, so, but it was awful. Yeah. Correct. You mentioned, when we first spoke, I think, that there are characters that go through her books. Right. And so, which characters? Well, so if if I can swing from Olive to her latest work, which are really two very much inter interconnected books. The penultimate novel that she's written is a book called uh, My Name is Lucy Barton. And it's the only book that I know that she's written that's in, the, in first person. And it's about a woman, again, in a small town, growing up in a small town. She's the youngest of three children. The family is destitute and the kids are in this rural town in Illinois the the uh, the object of much scorn uh, by the community because they're so dirt poor uh, there's also a, a more than an innuendo that the father for lack of a better word had issues mm -hmm. potentially potential sexual issues potentially molestation issues and so the family is very very isolated anyway Lucy the the first book is really a first-person narrative that takes place largely in a, in a hospital room because she's a young mother living in New York. She's already published. She has two children. She's married to a hard-charging investment banker. The kids are young. 
And she goes in for an appendectomy, appendectomy and suddenly develops this very serious infection. And the, the husband, out of desperation, because I don't think he can manage spending time with his wife at the same time he's working, of course, and dealing with his two young daughters, asks uh, his mother-in-law to come out for a visit. And she spends a week with Lucy, primarily in a hotel room. And during the course of the week, they go through... Hotel room or hospital? Uh, hospital room, yeah. excuse me. They go through uh, aspects of Lucy's childhood and, most importantly, characters. While the mother's there, what are, what are mother and daughter, who don't have a lot in common, going to talk about? Well, they're going to talk about people back home. And so Lucy mentions the Nicely girls, a family of uh, called Nicely, who have three daughters who are contemporaries of, of, of Lucy's, mentions the Mumfords, mentions others. So you're taking this all in. Ultimately, it's, the book is really about this, this sort of unusual mother-daughter bond, people who almost never see each other, and yet can, can stay, have this basic elemental connection that only a mother and a daughter, I think, can have. But then the next book, which is her last novel, is called Anything is Possible. And this is a book somewhat like Olive Kittredge, but not. And I'll, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a minute. It's about nine or ten chapters. Every one of the chapters involves a, a person or a series of people who have at one point or another intersected Lucy's life. But Lucy herself is only in one of these chapters in, in an active way. She's mentioned in several of them, but in several of them she's not. But you know the names because they all appear in My Name is Lucy yeah, Barton yeah, yeah. and then reoccur. That's wonderful. So it's it's almost very much more like a series of short stories, except uh, uh, the, uh, that they're, they're, they all know Lucy. I find uh, anything is possible. I still believe it. I, w I would say it's a novel, but to me it really is a novel about a place more than about a person. So is that set in Illinois? It's in set in Il Illinois, farm town, somewhere outside of Peoria, yeah. best I can tell. So it's interesting. I listened to an interview that Strout gave, uh, a couple of them. One of them, she points out that from an early, early age, her mother would, talk, uh, growing up in Maine, talk about the neighbors, just as you've suggested uh, about the lack of privacy in a small community. And uh, when uh, Elizabeth got a little bit older, her mother would say, just you know, write, write things down, write down what you see. And her mother, more recently, uh, would have said to her, looking at somebody, second marriage. And she looked at her mother, and, and her mother said, go look. And she looked over, she said, yeah, second marriage. So she learned from an early, she was taught and learned from an early age to observe people. And this kind of dialogue you're suggesting, I think, inevitably results from that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the power of observation is spectacular. Her writing is very vivid. Right. Um, I said in another podcast I did, I'm, I'm torn between fiction and nonfiction. Uh, the more, even if I read very good fiction, I feel as if I'm stealing, t stealing time from great nonfiction. But when you get a storyteller like this who involves you in the lives of others, it's not always people you like, but it's fascinating. Yeah, and there's no question about it. And Olive is just this outsized character. I believe, I think I'm right on this, I think she is actually working on another novel where Olive will reappear. Uh, I mean, she's such a compelling character. You want to, you want to know more. I'm a little anxious about that because she's gone in in Olive, in the in the book Olive Kittredge itself. 
she's got from, I would say, uh, you know, age age about forty to seventy when you progress through the novel, and so is she going to stay within that time frame? Is she going to go back earlier? Yeah. Is she going to go beyond? Because the last chapter in Isle of Kittredge, you, I'm sure you remember, Howard involves her potentially establishing a, 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 another uh, relationship with the man following the death of her, her husband, Henry, who had a stroke, lingered in a nursing yeah. home for four years, and then passed away. Uh, so what, what will it be about? I'm anxious to see, to yeah. find out. So if, if it's what happened next, there are a lot of people who will not show up. Henry is one. Henry is one. Uh, there are a number of suicides. A number of suicides. Uh, um, so what do you make of all the suicides? Well, I, I'd like to know more about her own per- Elizabeth Strout's own personal history, because clearly she's... So there was suicide in her family. Yeah. So Not that, not that she'll talk about, but she did yeah. acknowledge that. Okay. And so that doesn't surprise me. Olive's father is a suicide. Uh, there's an attempted suicide in, in her book. That's that's the uh, second chapter in the book. Uh, you know, it's... it's. Uh, I think any anyone who has encountered mental illness either from a, from the perspective of a friend who you know might have it or a family member, appreciates uh, this sort of cloud that is hanging over people's yeah. heads. So it's... Uh, and, and then we, t- we talked about small towns. Uh, there's a lot of mother-daughter relationships. So in, in Olive Kittredge, we had a mother-son relationship, but in a lot of the other books, I guess, well, you, you mentioned Lucy Barton. Right. Uh, intense mother-daughter relationship. Intense mother-daughter relationship there, somewhat fraught, mother-daughter relationship in her second novel, which is Abide With Me, which involves a young minister who loses his wife. Sounds like a postpartum situation. Uh, she really never gets her, her, her ballast back after the birth of her sec- their second child, and suddenly this minister is left with two daughters under the age of six in a small town in Maine. The mother is a character in the book because she's literally has the younger child while the minister's trying to cope with life with the older daughter and the responsibilities associated with being the the minister in, in the local at the local church. Uh, again, a very uh, uh, not fully formed and not wholly satisfying relationship between son and mother in, in that in that book as well. Yeah. Uh, so when we first spoke, you, you talked possibly about talking about Sebastian Barry as well. Did, when you, I don't know if you can compare the two, but um, two great writers. Yeah, now I would say uh, two great writers. There's one, there's one common theme there that I see in that, you know, Stroud has been masterful in, to, in interweaving characters and seeing how the lives of these different characters intersect. She does that in Olive Kittredge. And she does it again in with Lucy Barton in the two the two latest books. Barry's done that as well, but he's he does that in the context of this this family, the McNulty family, and it's and it's multi generational. Uh, his books, uh, in my recollection, go from about eighteen fifty to with the nineteen fifties, and there are different people who've touched this family. Although most of the books seem to center on. The sort of critical decade in Ireland when when the Irish Rebellion occurred in 1916, and and uh, and there's so much Irish literature written specifically about that period because it was such a such a important event in Irish history, but these characters move in and out 
and 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 yet there are huge gaps, and which I'm anxious to see him fill in. I hope he can. <laughs> stay around long enough where he can actually write a couple more novels and connect some of the dots because right now by my recollection is a 30 or 40 year gap between uh the earliest mcnulty mentioned and 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 then the the early decades of the 20th century when there's a fair amount of writing about the family have you pointed out to him i haven't got this you know gap? it's funny you should say that so i was finnegan a, writes letters well too. but <laughs> I, I and jim doesn't know this i was in london three years ago and there's this wonderful bookstore in uh, near uh, Marble Arch uh, in the Marlborn neighborhood. I think it's called Durst. And my friend uh, and former former colleague at the bank that I worked, I was having dinner with them. He said, "Like we were going to go to a, a an author reading tonight." And it's at and this book bookstore is is. It's like the old Scribner's, except it's still a real bookstore. Yeah. It's three levels. It's old as that old Scribner's. It's yeah, it's magnificent. So, the, and I said, "Well, who's the author?" And he goes, "Well, it's an Irish writer named Sebastian Barry." And I practically jumped off my chair. So he said, "Well, he's one of my favorite authors." So I, I went there, and he was reading. He was reading passages from his new book, which I had not read at the time, but I subsequently read called Days Without End. And it was just it was just a wonderful experience. I what I should have done, Howard, but didn't is I should have gotten up and asked him, "When are you going?" Well, I didn't know at the time that this other book took place sixty years before any of the others. Yeah. Now that I know it, I really I really need to. I I can't do what Jim does, which is to annoy people and write letters. Oh, he doesn't annoy. Uh, no, I know. He enhances their lives. He does. He does. <laughs> Although he doesn't get a lot of answers. From from his letters, so, uh, he's, he's got to work on it, refine his approach. But uh, the <laughs> the idea is a good one. So, a, any of the other authors that you mentioned uh, worth mentioning here to rise to the level of Strout or Sebastian Barry? Uh, I mean, look, many. So, fiction is just it's such it's it's endless. It for someone who's an avid reader like you are, a good book just provides the greatest kind of pleasure, right? I mean, you can you can escape, you can. You, know, you can get into the lives of the people that you're reading about. Sometimes something quite profound occurs. I mean, Alice Monroe writes stories that, you know, about, and they're also very much uh, closed family stories. Uh, a number of characters whose lives intersect. There's always, uh, nothing's ever perfect. There's no point in writing a story about a family right. that gets along all the time, right? <laughs> That's true. Uh, and yet, uh, uh, so, I mean, but I love the variety and I love the, uh, I love what I learn out of the books. Yeah. So one last thing on bookstores, you mentioned uh, Durst in London, yeah. uh, in the U S favorite bookstores. Well, my favorite bookstore, cause it happens to be close, uh, to, uh, my house in Connecticut is a small bookshop in Washington, the Washington Depot called the Hickory, Hickory Stick. And the people who run it are wonderful people. They do have authors who show up on a pretty regular basis. It's a, it's in Litchfield County in northwest Connecticut. And it's a very low-key county. People don't advertise that they live there. But there, there are authors who live there, and they have, a, have a bit, an ability to attract them. And I'm probably there once a week puttering around, <laughs> picking up a book or two. Uh, and, you know, it's about 10 minutes from my house, so it's, it's pretty great. easy easy to stop and to uh, and to do that that's great well this has been great thank you very much thank you Howard appreciate it 
That's it for season one of Tell Me What You're Reading. Thanks to my season one guests, Frank, Harden, Jim, Emma, Maya, Marty, Dom, Emily, Victoria, and Adriana, Peyton, Youngna, Janem, Salama, Laura, Sushila, Madeline, Eva, and Yao, and thanks to you, Joe. More information about all of our guests can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Our website also includes links to the books and other resources we refer to in all of our discussions. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol is my muse, as well as my affiliate manager. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests. But not Joe. Jim Finnegan gets that commission. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. If you like their podcast, please subscribe. And, in any event, let me have your comments on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast after a little break. Season 2 is already shaping up to be pretty special. Happy holidays to all. Fiction is just, it's such, it's, it's endless. It, for someone who's an avid reader like you are, a good book just provides the greatest kind of pleasure, right? I mean, you can, you can escape 